So, as I was saying, I'm, I am very happy that that people keep making this choice to come to a place like this uh, on an occasion like this. And the effort that it takes to get here, or the, the uh, people from Edinburgh, I really didn't think you were going to make it. I, I'm impressed that you did. Um, so, some people set out yesterday to come down here for the day and didn't make it, got turned back halfway, so we're pleased that you're here. And as I was saying at the beginning of the meditation, I, I do hope that, that we all um, use this time together to find an increased appreciation of the strength that is potentially there in the awareness that is highlighted in Buddha's teachings. We hear a lot about uh, going for refuge and in the beginning, most of us probably come across the Buddha's teachings and have an idea of going for refuge as some sort of interesting Asian way of talking about believing in a teacher. Or maybe it's something to do with, with um, you know, what you do if you're a Buddhist. This is your sort of membership. You, you go for refuge. And I know in my own case... Um, it was not really very important to me when I first found uh, confidence in the Buddhist teaching and decided that I was um, wanted to align myself with these teachings, particularly with meditation. This business of going for refuge and and um, you know the precepts and all that sort of business was all very secondary and and rather unimportant. Um, and it did take a good number of years before beginning to feel in a conscious way how profoundly important it is to have a refuge, to actually have a sense of something that one is committed to beyond getting what I want. Now, of course, uh, we're all committed to getting what we want on some, to some degree, on some level, and there is um, there is a pleasure in that. There's a joy. There's a happiness in getting what we want. There's a gratification. Uh, if I get what I want, then I I generally feel more comfortable than if I don't get what I want. Generally speaking, but in our effort to cultivate awareness, even that is not so straightforward, because even even the pleasure of getting what we want actually is kind of it's kind of got a hook to it. You know, there's there's a there's something there. Actually, you know, knowing that you have to get what you want to be happy is a kind of unfortunate, really. It, it, it feels it's a bit of a. It's, I feel I actually feel I sort of um, lack of self-respect if I know that I'm addicted to getting what I want. And I think this is one reason why the. Um, card that we sent out to you all this year, uh, to a lot of you, um, 
I'm sure there's somebody, some people here who didn't get our card, um, but the card that we did send out to a lot of people, um, there was a verse on there, a Dhammapada verse, which uh, I really like. I think it's verse 331, if I remember correctly. And the um, second line of that verse, it said, Pleasure arises from having few needs. I think that was one of the main reasons why I I sent out that card, because I thought that was an important message, actually to recognize, for us to recognize that actually there is a pleasure that comes from having few needs. Usually we associate pleasure from actually getting what we think we need or getting what we want. And what the Buddha was pointing, what the Buddha was encouraging, was for us to consider that, or to actually come to recognize that actually there's a pleasure, there is a pleasure that comes from having few needs, from not having a lot of needs. That whole verse, that whole Dhammapada verse, um, was about pleasure, and each of the four lines of it um, started with pleasure arises, at least that's I, uh, that's my translation. There, there are many different translations, of course, of the Dhammapada, and and um, people translate them differently. In fact, somebody came the other day and and said, "Where did you get that verse from on the card you sent me?" And I said, "Oh, it's from the Dhammapada." And he said, "Well, I thought it was." And I looked up the Dhammapada, and what I saw there was completely different from your verse. And uh, that's true. There are many different ways of translating these things. However. Um, it, each of the four lines of that verse refers to this Pali word sukha, which is um, happiness or pleasure, and, and it's important. And I thought it was so important that we should start each line with it. And so each line started with happiness. Happiness arises, happiness arises four times. And the first one is happiness arises from a timely company of friends. And the second line is happiness arises from having few needs. And the third line is Happiness arises from having accumulated virtue at life's end. And then the fourth line is, happiness arises from seeing beyond suffering. So my message, my, the reason I chose this verse, as I said, was, um, well, there's a strong emphasis or appreciation on the second line, um, but really to also for us to all consider the potential for happiness. We're all interested in happiness. We all value happiness or well-being or pleasure. And unless we stop and look carefully and consider carefully, then we can easily and understandably settle for a happiness that actually is not uh, the highest happiness. And when the Buddha spoke about happiness, when he used this word sukha, uh, he used it actually to talk about uh, nibbana, te sangupa samo sukho, which is which is one of the lines in the stanza that we recite regularly, which means, and knowing this is the ultimate happiness. Now people often question this and say, well, how can there be happiness for 
how can you use the word happiness when you talk about nibbana? Because nibbana is supposed to be freedom from desire, and 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 happiness is is tied up with desire. And well, again, we need to look and listen carefully at how we use words and understand that. Well, as the Buddha said, you cannot actually say what nibbana is. You cannot say what enlightenment or liberation or freedom actually is. We can only approximate it and. So the Buddha did approximate it by talking about it as the ultimate happiness. Tesang wupasam also called. And it doesn't have to be, it's not necessarily the case that happiness only arises when we get what we want. When it does arise from getting what we want, we're encouraged to look at it, like the, the happiness as in the first line of that stands there, the, happiness arises from the timely company of friends and certainly over the the last few weeks the last week in particular last couple of weeks um, I've often reflected how incredibly fortunate well I am but we are actually um, to have so many good friends and 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 really how, how how truly beneficial that is how truly wonderful that is to have friends and we had on Christmas Eve we had a little party. Uh, I don't know, I suppose some of you had parties. Well, we decided this year we'd have a party. The children had a party on Christmas Eve morning and so, or Christmas Eve afternoon, so we had a party on Christmas Eve evening. And we all sat around the fire and miraculously enough good friends of the community turned up with bottles of all sorts of things that were um, allowable, I assure you. Um, Anagarikas walking along with bottles under their arms and um, very agreeable, allowable things and and so we spent the whole evening together uh, just being together as a community of, of monks and, and Anagarikas together and it wasn't, you know, we weren't um, delving deep into into the great mysteries of life but we were enjoying each other's company and there is a pleasure in that. There's a pleasure in being with people that you feel you can trust. And there's a pleasure in being remembered by people that you share something with. And in my uh, comment in the newsletter that just went out, I, I, I let it be known that how much we appreciate all the cards that we get here. Uh, there's something about the reaffirmation of, of that which we share that is very pleasurable. <coughs> Regrettably, we... We, we can fall into the trap of, or the, the mistake of taking each other for granted, even though we, we do appreciate each other and we do care for each other, we do value each other. Maybe we don't actually express it, maybe we don't um, mention it. And, and there, are, there are, you know, perhaps some of us have suffered the consequences in relationship of where there's not enough of that expression of appreciation of friendship and, and there's something lost in that. So the Buddha recognized this and actually spoke a, lot, spoke a lot about the qualities of friendship and the value of friendship, the necessity of, of true spiritual friendship. And So when we have it, when we find it and we find pleasure in it, then there's an encouragement to really let that be conscious, to, to really uh, feel fed, feel uh, delighted by good company. Uh, I know that that if um, you know nobody, if everybody stopped coming here on Sunday evening or, or on New Year's Eve, it was just the four of us, the eight of us. Well, it might be okay, but it wouldn't be the same. Having friends come 
and actually feeling together that we share something that we respect and value, that quiet affirmation of, of something shared is delightful. And I appreciate that there is this in the Buddha's teachings that, that points this out. So to find pleasure, to be conscious of the pleasure that arises from the timely company of, of friends. And then the second line, pleasure arises from having few needs. I think if we don't engage ourselves in a meditation practice, if we don't come to recognize for ourselves that possibility of quietness, when we're not wanting anything in particular. Or if there are ripples of wanting passing through the mind, we can see them as that, the ripples, the movement. There's much more to us than that. If we don't have that experience, then, then perhaps we can't understand the meaning of this. Pleasure arises from having few needs. Because that movement, that sometimes incessant movement of desire in our minds, in our hearts, in our experience, is an irritant, actually. Now, if we don't choose to reflect on it, if we don't choose to draw our attention inwards and inquire regarding the nature, the, what's actually true, then the way it appears to be defines us. And we think that actually the only way that I can be happy is by getting what I want. Now many of you, I'm sure, have, have heard me tell a story, but I'll tell it again of that meditation student who um, was going to their teacher. This is the student lived in London and had a busy working life and, and um, walked to work every day and um, was reporting to their teacher how they'd overcome their problem that they had with with um, going to the same pastry shop every day and buying pastries that they didn't need and eating them. And this had been a humiliating experience because a particular meditator was quite able in many areas of practice and had been doing lots of retreats and, and generally on retreat was pretty good. But uh, when it came to walking to work past this pastry shop, it all fell apart. And they would go into the pastry shop and there were the pastries, they smelt the same and they, and they tasted the same and then, then she felt bad afterwards, just the same, every time it happened. 
And she found a solution. She decided she made a resolution. You know, the Buddha encouraged making resolutions, and so she made a resolution, she made a determination that she would just not walk to work past that pastry shop. She would walk to work another way. And so she made the great gesture of renunciation, which was great in her case, um, but she had a problem. She really needed to stop eating pastries. And she was well motivated, and she made this great gesture of renunciation and went to work, walked to work a longer route, and didn't go past the pastry shop. And so this one student was reporting to to her teacher that, you know, feeling quite pleased about herself. And the teacher said, well, I'm afraid you've got it completely wrong. That's not the, that's not the way to practice at all. You, what you need to do is actually prepare yourself beforehand to see what is actually taking place. Not to avoid what's taking place, but to see what's actually taking place. To be aware of what's actually happening as it's happening. And then you won't have to walk to work the longer route. What you do, and she advised her to actually, beforehand, you stop and consider and see there's this, this thing happens. Every time you get near the pastry shop, you smell the pastries. And, and then this craving, this desire, I want pastries, I want that particular pastry. And then the next thing you know, you're in there paying money and you've got a bag full of pastries. Well, slow down, come back, prepare yourself before, think the night before, okay, this is what happens. And this, this kind of contemplation, this, this is preparation. This is preparing yourself. There are, the Buddha said there are some, some impressions in the mind which you can just look away from and they disappear. Other ones you can look at them and contemplate them and, and then they disappear. And other ones you've actually got to really prepare yourself and think deeply about and contemplate and really look into the nature of them before they'll disappear. And then there are still other ones which all you can do is actually grit your teeth push the tongue up against the roof of your mouth and endure them, and they will pass eventually. So there are different categories of, of uh, things that come to trouble us. And so this category was one whereby what was called for was actually preparing oneself beforehand. Stop and think, this is what happens, this is a sequence. I'm walking to work, I'm not walking to the pastry shop, I'm walking to work. But when I get to this point, I smell the pastries, the desire arises, and the next thing I've got a bag of pastries in my hands. So what you need to do is just slow down and just see what's happening as it's happening and just just see it, just know it. Don't be fooled by the way it appears to be, believing that you, you won't be happy again until you get the pastry. I mean, have you ever had that feeling? I'll never be happy again until I have... It used to be, I mean, I remember cigarettes. <coughs> um, fortunately, many years ago now, I, I remember if the... In fact, I used to think if the only thing I ever attain in this life is non-smoking, then I'll consider it an achievement. And uh, fortunately, when I was living at Chithurst, about 20 years ago, I achieved the state of non-smoking. And, uh, but before that, there was regularly the experience of if I don't have a cigarette, I'm going to die. And, you know, perhaps you don't have a cigarette problem, but, you know, maybe we've all got something that we feel that with. Now, that's what the Buddha called the apparent nature thing. That's the world. Now, if we think that happiness comes from actually getting what we want, that's been called being let, caught up in the world. In other words, well, what you can do is see through the world, see beyond the world, see beyond the way things appear to be. That desire to have a pastry is just that. It's just a desire to have a pastry. You don't actually need to have a pastry. But she was fooled regularly by this, I will not be happy again until I actually get a pastry. So she did what she was encouraged to do and prepared herself before and the next morning went to work and took the route past the pastry shop and, you know, prepared herself well and as she got approached the 
place to shop, she was quite with it, and she's recognising, said, right, okay, I'm walking, walking towards the place, I'm walking, walking, okay, pastry shop, smell, desire, I'm here. And there she is, outside the pastry shop, standing there, fully consciously, I want to go in and get a pastry. That was quite clear, she wasn't kidding herself, she wasn't telling herself it was, this is a fact, that she's simply recognising with this interested awareness. So I want to go and buy a pastry. And then it got a little easier. I want a pastry. And then it got a little simpler, just wanting a pastry. And it's gaining momentum now. It's really, well, force. And then it's just straight wanting. Wanting. And she stands there. As it was reported, I didn't see it, but I, I heard that it was reported. She just stood there, fully consciously, in her body, feet on the ground, outside the shop, quietly. She wasn't saying it outwardly. I mean, that wouldn't be very good. But she was inwardly there with it, wanting, wanting, wanting. Finished. Gone. And, as I heard it, what she recognised on that on that occasion, was the potential of having fewness of needs. Yeah. That, that we, we, really, we really believe that we need these things when we're fooled by the way desire appears. Desire has that apparent nature to it. Like the, the outside of something appears to be a certain way. You know, the, I can remember, I have a vivid memory of when I was a young monk living in Thailand and I, I still believed I definitely needed to have lots of food on, on uh, New Year's Day. And so what happens, this is actually quite an embarrassing story, but it's many years ago and I can tell you now, that um, in Thailand there's so many people want to give food on New Year's Day that actually the monks can go, go, to the mon- go out of the monastery, go bindabat around the town and then come back into the food and go out again. And actually you can do it half a dozen times <laughs> And still come back with your bowl, the food is falling out of your bowl, there's so much food. Because uh, the idea being that everybody wants to start the New Year's Day by actually giving food. And, and they've got all sorts of motivations for that, which is their business. But the result is that actually monks end up with a huge amount of food. And I confess that I, you know, I did on that occasion, I justified it by saying, well, the temple boys will have lots of food. Because the temple boys who live in the monastery, they're usually kids from up country who don't have anywhere to stay. And they get dumped in monasteries in Bangkok and... The food we don't eat, they get to eat. And so I justified it, thinking, well, the food that I won't eat, they'll get. And so I did a few trips. And, and, um, but the, on this trip, there was one particular offering, I remember. It was a, it was a beautiful cake. It was the most beautiful cake. And um, it was just, I mean, it was just, you know, I, I, I didn't think I was going to wait till I finished the meal before I ate it, but I did. I, I left it the very last thing, it was in my bowl there, and there it was, all the gorgeous icing and everything. And I finished it, and I thought, right, now it is. And I, I took a bite of this cake, and it looked so beautiful. And I'm afraid it was, you know, it was not a good cake. It was not a good cake. It was, there's a sad thing they sometimes do, whereby they, you know, they, 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 it's not made from even proper oil, actually. Goodness knows it could have been axle grease or anything, but it was not, it was not edible. It was, it was actually an illegal cake. Like, it was an illegal cake that should never have been made or sold and should not have been put in my bowl. In theory, of course, considering my mind state, it was exactly the right thing to be put in my bowl. And it was a very good lesson. I, I contemplated the apparent nature of things very deeply. 
on that New Year's Day. You know, this, uh, the, the way that cake appeared to me was that it was definitely going to give me a huge amount of pleasure. I hadn't had a cake like that in years. And this was definitely going to give me a huge amount of pleasure. And But that's just apparent reality. And this whole teaching is about seeing beyond the way things appear to be, to the way things actually are. Now, you know, cakes aside, that's not really the point. But the principle is the point that when pleasure arises or some apparent need, like I, you know, in relationships, you know, I need to tell you this. And the number of times people come to me and say, I just need to tell you. And then they get it off their chest and they feel better afterwards. And I've, I've developed this now where I, I try to encourage people to slow down and I ask them if possible. They could say, well, could you try substituting, I want to tell you something. And, and you know, then we come to an agreement. If they want to tell me something and I'm ready to hear it, well, then we can enter into discussion together. If they really need to tell me something, I'm not so sure about that. We, we have these ideas of what we need in all areas of our life. And there's an encouragement in our practice to, to stop and investigate this apparent need relationship we have with life. And what the Buddha was pointing out was that actually happiness arises from fewness of needs. You know, not from actually you know, getting all our needs, but actually from not having so many needs. And this is not, this is not to judge <coughs> apparent needs when they arise, or apparent desires when they arise, but to generate an interest, an interest, an enthusiasm, and actually looking deeper looking beyond the way things appear to be. The number of times that I've I felt, I just need to get out of here. I just need to get out of here. And I go through a list of places that I could go to. And I mean, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. This is not constant. You know, I'm generally very happy to be here. Um, but there have been a number of times over the last 10 years where this thought has arisen, you know, I really need to get out of here. And it's not happened. And Invariably, invariably, I'm really grateful that it's not happened. Because often behind that apparent need, there's actually something else. And so there's an encouragement to prepare ourselves with this interest in the reality of what's taking place, to see beyond the way things appear to be. Because there is something to be seen beyond the way things appear to be. The Buddhist word for it, what the Buddha called Dhamma. The way things appear to be is the world. The way things actually are is Dhamma. And to see beyond the way things appear to be is a source of great happiness and pleasure. The third line of this verse, happiness arises from having accumulated virtue at life's end. Now, you know, if I hadn't read that, that's not actually something I would have really thought about. I don't know about you, but that's not something I generally dwell on. But this is something the Buddha spoke about a lot and uh, encouraged us not, you know, don't waste your time, don't be heedless. We don't know when we're going to die, we don't know when life's end is going to come. It may be soon, it may be far away, but he encouraged us to prepare ourselves. A lot of, a lot of the what we do is, in fact, preparation. Meditation, sitting on the cushion. Ajahn Chah said, you know, real practice is not sitting on your cushion. That's preparation. Real practice is when, when the passions 
impinge on the heart. That's practice. When the passions impact on the heart, that's practice. If we can be there at the moment of impact and stay there in the middle of it, don't wobble. That's practice. But if we don't prepare ourselves, well, then, you know, we, well, I'm sure you all know very well that even if we do prepare ourselves, it's difficult to stay there in the middle of the fire when the passions flare up. It's much easier to go with them, to get carried away with them, to go up into our head and, and think <coughs> our way through, hallucinate our way through these scenarios when we're going to massacre somebody or we're going to consume something or whatever it is we, our hallucinations take us to think we're going to do. Or whether we get carried away by the passions and act on it and, and do things driven by wild energy. To actually be able to stay there in the centre when the energy is, is raging, not repressing, not pushing it down, so give ourselves a stomach disorder or a heart attack, not indulging in hallucinations and increasing our blood pressure, not acting out, but the middle way of being still in the middle when the passions are in full flight. So the preparation, sitting on our cushion, counting our breaths or feeling the sensation of the breath or whatever the meditation object may be, whatever the <coughs> activity of our formal practice, sitting still in a right posture, despite the impulse to move, despite the impulse to think, to fantasize about the next project, the next idea. There are so many things that are so seductive, I find anyway, there's so many things in life that are just lovely to think about. I don't, we don't get a lot of the newspapers and television here, so we're not so, so consumed with the horrors of the world. Um, and I still find there are, you know, there are, even though there are a lot of sad and un, unpleasant things happening around, that even despite that, there's still a lot of lovely things to be happening, to be thinking about. And I can, I find in my meditation, I can still get caught up in, in thinking about what the retreat house is going to be like. You know, I already have the material for making the mattress covers and, 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 and what sort of taps we're going to have and you know, what's, what, the, what the floor in the shower is going to be like and you know, how can we have it so people can... The way that the architect drew the plans was that the shower and the toilet were in the same room and then I'm thinking about the guests coming out in the morning and somebody's having a shower and somebody wants to use the toilet and how can we divide it up and is there enough room in there? Well, of course, I could just restrain myself and go back to the breast and say, leave it up to Andrew, let the architect sort it out. But I regularly fall for it, and I can easily spend a whole meditation period just redesigning the whole ablutions block and the retreat house. Um, that's not the worst of my fantasies. <laughs> there are some that are even worse than that. But what's important is to know that that's not an obligation. It's not important that we never do it. That's impossible. We all get caught up. We all get carried away. 
What's important is to know that it's not an obligation, it's not an obligation to be driven. It's not an obligation to be driven by these forces, by these passions. There is something we can do about it. And so the preparation that we're encouraged to do, sitting on our cushions, sit still, don't fidget, don't move, even if you want to. And if you want to think and fantasize, well, look at that wanting, see it for what it is, and then draw the mind back. and be with the breath, be with the body posture, be with the meditation object. Not because we're conditioning or reprogramming ourselves, but because we're preparing ourselves so as to be with what is. That's what's important, how to be with what is, so that when what is is happening, we can learn from what is, instead of always being caught up in what if, the what if disorder that is so endemic, what if that didn't happen? What if this did happen? What if, if only? The if only disease that, yeah, it's very, very painful, very sad condition. And we all suffer from it to varying degrees. But instead of suffering the, the agony of being caught up in the if only disease, we can actually experience the pleasure of learning from the what is condition. What is the way things are? But it does take training, it does take preparation. And the Buddha's encouragement, you know, he encourages, well, think about when you're dying, you know, what's it going to be like? I have a very good friend, a lovely friend, who lives in a, in a rest home now. She was independent, lived her, all her life, up until the age of 97, and, and now is living in a rest home. And she was telling me recently, she's, she said, oh, she said, I really feel for all the other people in this place here, they haven't prepared themselves for being here. She sits in a room pretty much all day long preparing for dying. And every time I go to see her, she said, I was preparing to die last night. <laughs> and anyway, we always talk about it. And uh, she meditates and thinks about dying. And she's very, very peaceful. Very peaceful. Absolutely no complaints. No complaints at all. Well, occasionally, I mean, she fell over the other day and hurt herself and understandably had a minor complaint about the speed that the ambulance drove. But, you know, that was all. She thought the driver could have been more careful. Generally, she doesn't complain about anything. She's very peaceful and very contented. But her observation, I was very grateful for that. I really, I, I feel, feel very grateful to hear her say that. It was with such sincerity. She, she felt this genuine sense of, of sympathy or pity for the people who are distracting themselves watching television all day long. She never goes and watches television. She never goes to bingo. She can't stand the sing-songs. She finds them tiresome. So she stays in the room. The only thing she goes out is for this thing called pat dog, where people bring in these dogs and you go out and you pat them. And, and that she loves. Because she always had dogs. Well, when she lost her husband, she had dogs. And uh, so she goes out for pat dog. But other than that, she stays in a room and she's perfectly contented and very happy and just she reads the Dhammapada and she reads another couple of Buddhist books and meditates and contemplates and practices dying. I find that a great inspiration and, and she has prepared herself. She's been meditating for about 60 years, I think. And um, I think that's a great lesson for us. And this verse that is mentioned in, the, in this verse in the Dhammapada, that pleasure arises from having accumulated virtue at life's end. And to think, well, what's the opposite? That actually 
sadness arises when you realize that well the Buddha the image the Buddha gave he said he said it's like it's like a scraggy old heron standing lonely at the edge of a dried up lake without any fish in it that's the image the Buddha gave for for somebody who didn't spend their life developing virtue and at the end of their life they actually haven't accumulated any virtue and there's this there's a sense of poverty at the end of life Contrasting that with the possibility of a real pleasure, a real pleasure that can potentially be there for us if, if when we come to end our life we know that we've actually <coughs> applied ourselves to that which really matters, that which is worthy. And then the last line of this, this stanza, this verse, pleasure arises from seeing beyond suffering. Well, this is actually this is what I was I, I started off talking about in the beginning, the meaning for me of, of of what a refuge is. To have a refuge, to have to have something for me, it's like having a compass. You know, if you've ever been out in the ocean, and and you can't find a compass, or you know, <laughs> if you've been camping and you don't know how to work the compass, or whatever your experience of being with a compass is. You know, a compass is really valuable. It orientates you. When we've got a compass, we can we can feel oriented in a safe direction. And that's what a refuge is for me. That's what I understand by refuge. It's it's skillfully inquiring into life and finding out what is worthy. What is really worthy? What is really worthy? Yeah. What is really worthy? This is actually the word arahant. The word arahant or enlightened being actually is somebody who is who is truly worthy or somebody who's realized that which is truly worthy. And so finding out what has got inherent worth in it and then holding that up and saying, This I orient myself towards this. And so for me, for us, I trust uh, that this is the Buddha. And what is the Buddha? Of course. The Buddha, we know, was a human being who lived in India two and a half thousand years ago. And for his humanity and for his teaching and for his example, we're, we're very grateful and very fortunate. But it wasn't his person that he left behind. As he said himself, if you want to see the Buddha, you see the Dhamma. You see the reality, you see actuality. And this encouragement to, to cultivate the potential that we all have for living out of an awareness that isn't limited by experience. The Buddha certainly was conscious. The Buddha had consciousness. The Buddha was alive. The Buddha walked. The Buddha ate. He was fully enlightened and still moved around like a human being does. But what was different was the Buddha's consciousness wasn't limited. The Buddha's consciousness wasn't limited. Our consciousness is limited. And we experience the limitation of consciousness every time we come up against that experience which says, I can't take it anymore. I can't do it anymore. That is me imposing a limitation on consciousness. Now we all know also that that's actually not ultimately true because we've all endured past the, the experience of I can't take it anymore and we have taken a little bit more whether it's sitting on retreat and your knees feel like they're just going to break and you, 
you just can't stand it, you decide you're going to sit there and you breathe energy into your knees and your hips relax and your legs go down and, and the pain disappears and you can sit there a little bit longer. And you realize that actually that, um, that apparent reality of I can't take it anymore was just that, it was an apparition, it was an apparent reality. If we'd been fooled by the world or by the way things appear to be, we would have grasped that apparent reality, believed it to be so, and then fixed that imposed limitation on consciousness and limited ourselves as just that, somebody who can only sit for that length of time or can only take that much pain. Well, there are many other examples also in our lives where, where we feel this I must have, I must have, not be treated like that. Well, the promise, the hope, the inspiration that that is offered us in the teaching example of the Buddha and all the enlightened disciples since the Buddha is this message that consciousness is not inherently limited. It's inherently limitless. Apamano Buddha, Apamano Dhammo, Apamano Sankho. Limitless is the Buddha, limitless is the Sangha. Without limitation are these things. Mm. So to consider the possibility through investigation, how when we feel limited, that's just the way it appears to be. Just to consider that, not to believe it, to consider it and then to witness the experience of our heart and mind expanding and the greater increased potential for living with more room, with more possibility, and then extrapolating that. So, well, what happens if actually it just keeps going until there aren't any limitations anymore? We just let go completely. And again, to quote Ajahn Chah, the wonderful teaching says, if you, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you have complete peace. And so taking the Buddha as our refuge, the Dhamma as our refuge, the Sangha as our refuge, or consciously contemplating what is our refuge and raising it up and valuing it, there's a real pleasure in the possibility of seeing beyond suffering. Suffering is when we impose limitations on consciousness. The Buddha was free from suffering because he was free from the habit of imposing limitations on consciousness. There were no more tendencies in the Buddha's mind to impose limitations. There was no more grasping. For us, there is grasping and there are limitations, there is suffering, appropriately, accordingly. So to seek the pleasure and to really enjoy the pleasure of recognizing the possibility of being beyond suffering. For us, it comes in small moments when there is the experience of suffering and we don't believe in the way it appears to be and we, we endure the way we need to endure with here and now judgment-free awareness until there's the letting go and the relief and the pleasure, the pleasure that comes from actually seeing beyond suffering and then letting that, allowing that to strengthen our faith in this possibility. So thank you very much for your attention.